Kelly, which is right. Um, so I think today will be, be our last day of Prometheus Unbound. Are you relieved or since we hardly touched it? Um, did everyone read it? Um, so if I were to give you a quiz, which would, because you've read it, it would be fresh in your mind, and that would make you happy, right? Because you would, you know you would do well. Do we feel that way? No, we don't. <laughs> um, what is your hand up for yes or no? Your hand is up for no. No. You don't feel that way. No. Oh, <laughs> well. Um, did everyone scan their eyes over like every line? <laughs> there's, so, there's reading and there's reading, <laughs> as you probably all know. When I went to college, what I, my view of things was if I read every word, um, then whatever I don't get is the author's fault because I did my part, which is reading every word. Um, and so uh, that turned out, um, it turned out that if you take that attitude, there's a lot you don't get. Um, but that is a kind of minimal um, uh, prerequisite for doing the reading is actually you know, doing the reading. So did people, did everyone do that minimal kind of reading where every word was something that you recognized as a word um, and it was like not just, you know, oh, page, but oh yes, word, line. Okay. Um, well, that was your first reading. That's good. Um, for, um, I hope you will have occasion to read it again. And... Um, I think one of the things that might or will happen um, at some point is the sheer weirdness of the play. Um, I mean, the sheer weirdness that such a thing exists um, should make you think, well, I wonder what it is with that. Um, and at some point, um, for whatever reason, whether you go to English graduate school, which I couldn't recommend except to my worst enemy, um, these days, um, given that there are no jobs um, and that you're just setting yourself up for a fall. Um, or, um, as the Onion article says, find something that you really love and do it on nights and weekends for the rest of your life. Um, if you eventually decide that you really love Shelley, which I hope you will, um, even better than Coleridge, <laughs> um, then eventually you'll say, so what is, the, what is it with Prometheus Unbound? Like, it's uber weird, but there's something really intense about how extreme it is. Um, Shelley, in a conversation once, said of himself, I always go on until I am stopped, and I am never stopped. Um, and that's a pretty good self-description on his part. Um, so Shelley does tend to be a poet of um, extremes, his intensity... Um, is something that he will push as far as it can go. Um, the thing about Prometheus Unbound is that, first of all, if you were to see it as an anthology of poems, um, it's an amazing anthology of poems. Any part of Prometheus Unbound is incredible. It's um, generally what writers, and especially dramatists or um, writers of... Um, stories with plot do is um, to mix up the rhythm of what's going on. It's really hard 
um, not to get a break. It's really hard. You know, just think of going to the movies and think about how after a climax there just has to be um, a place where you get to relax for a little while. You know, the um, party scene or the tourist scene or the even the sex scene. Um, even in thrillers, those are all things that let you just settle down a little bit before the next um, exciting chase or fight occurs. Um, and that's just the rhythm of storytelling, is that there are mountains, but there are also valleys, and lots of them which make the mountains appear. Shelley is trying at every moment to write as intensely as he possibly can. It's all peaks in Shelley and no valleys, and we're completely unused to reading something like that um, because that's just not how storytelling works. That's just not um, what the rhythm of um, taking in works of literature, um, works of music, any sort of temporally offered, temporally presented work. Um, there are rhythms to it. Shelley's rhythms are all poetic, but he doesn't give you rhythms in the intensity of what he's doing. And um, so he's always got the pedal to the metal. Um, he's always going full speed, full intensity. And it's really hard to maintain that. As a reader, it's really hard to stay with that for more than really a few lines at a time. If you um, compare Shelley to Shakespeare, and it's not um, an impossible comparison. Um, did people notice how many echoes of Shakespeare there are in Prometheus Unbound? Um, can you name any, anyone? It's okay if you can't, but um, stuff like Tarry, Rash, Wanton, um, where does that come from, anyone know? Midsummer, Midsummer Night's Dream, yeah, there are echoes of Midsummer Night's Dream, yeah. The scene with the hours, mm -hmm. uh, the hours kind of being the, um, the messengers of destiny. Mm -hmm. I kind of thought that that was like Macbeth. Good. Tomorrow and tomorrow and yeah. tomorrow. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, there are lots of echoes, both verbal and thematic, of Shakespeare. Um, lots of echoes, even more so, of Dante. And um, but if you compare <coughs> Shelley with Shakespeare, in a way, comparing him with Dante is the apter comparison, um, because Dante was probably the poet who most influenced his style. Um, but if you compare Shelley with Shakespeare, um, the difference between them is that Shakespeare had an utterly amazing knowledge of how to get an audience into a cadence with the story that he was telling. Um, Shakespeare in the sonnets is writing at the top of his intensity at every moment. That's what makes a lot of people not like the sonnets, um, that they're not user-friendly. They're always Shakespeare writing as hard as he possibly can. But his plays are for real people. And because they're for real people in a real audience, um, he's incredibly good at getting to these climactic moments, a soliloquy of Hamlet's, um, a song of the fools, or um, um, a really intense interaction between Lear and his daughters, um, and then getting beyond them to other moments where we regather our strength. There's never time in Shelley to regather. He's sprinting all the time. 
um, Prometheus Unbound is like a marathon-length poem, which Shelley does at a sprint, or a marathon-length play, which Shelley does at a sprint. Um, that's why the first time it's so hard, but it's also why um, the more you know it, the more a lot of it will be there as background for itself. And the way things get to be a background for themselves, that's what it means to learn a work of literature. Not to learn what's happening in it, but just to learn it, to make it part of its own background. Um, it's also what happens when you learn music. If you think of music, if any of you are musicians, um, any kind of music, um, rock, jazz, whatever, um, you'll know the experience of not liking something at all, not liking a band, not liking a style of music, not liking a musician, whatever, um, not liking a composer, not liking them at all the first time you hear them and not seeing anything there. The first time I heard Charlie Parker, to me, it was all noise. Um, but then, as you learn it, as you learn a band that you didn't like at first, let's say, um, as you learn bebop, um, it's not all noise, but it becomes its own background. And when it becomes its own background, then the foreground is something you're able to do. So what happens is Shelley's, everything in Shelley especially in Prometheus Unbound, everything is foreground, and there is no background, or that's what it feels like. But as you get to know it, that foreground becomes its own background. Is that, is that a way of, of describing it that makes sense to some experiences that you've had? It doesn't have to be of Shelley, but to some experiences that you have. I think people feel that way about, um, lots of people feel that way about Picasso. That is the first time you see Picasso. Do you guys remember the first time you saw a Picasso painting or drawing? Um, it's just like <sighs> wacky, right? I mean, and then eventually you see enough Picassos and you start seeing that he's great. Um, but no kid, every kid thinks Picasso is a perfect example of adult bullshit. <laughs> that adults think that this is art and that's ridiculous. Um, are you laughing because it's true? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Do you still feel that way? No. No, okay, yeah. yeah. No, but every kid feels that way, you know. And he can be scary, but whatever it is, it's not beautiful. Um, and then eventually things change. But you might even remember, I remember this being true about Impressionism. That is, the first time I saw an Impressionist painting, when I was very, very young, I thought, it's just like a really blurry picture. What's the point? You know, and then everyone, Impressionism is something that everyone loves as an adult. Not everyone loves Picasso. But there are very few people um, in the modern day who think who like painting but don't like impressionism? That would be a very very. Are you? Are you? I, don't, I like it. Okay. Does anyone not like impressionism? But do you remember? You don't. No. I oh. You, okay. You're giving a kind of guilty look. No, absolutely not. Okay. Um, do you remember a time when you might not have though? I do remember it, but I was really really young. I think they brought in some Renoir to, to like fourth grade. Just, it was a blur. <laughs> like, why is that a good painting of a boy? It's just not. It doesn't look like a watering can at all. Um, but then it becomes, its, as I say, it becomes its own background. You learn, another way of putting it is to say you, could, you, you learn a kind of idiom or language um, for, the, um, for the work. 
Um, and, and that will happen. I just want to say that that will happen with Prometheus Unbound. That if you um, think of, again, if you think of Picasso, the way Picasso struck me when I was young was he was all angles. There's something painful about looking at his drawings um, because they were sharp. Everywhere you looked, something was sharp. And I didn't like all that sharpness. Um, you know, it looked like complete BS what a, what a four-year-old could do, but a four-year-old who really liked knives. And um, so not only did I think it was incompetent, but I also found it unpleasant. And um, that's a really hard thing for me to re-evoke in myself now. Um, but Shelley may feel all angles, especially Prometheus Unbound. Some of the lyrics, um, which we'll do after we do some Keats, won't feel that way. And The Triumph of Life, which is his greatest poem, and which I want to say a word about in a minute, won't feel that way. Is your hand up? No. Yeah, pardon me, no. Okay. Um, speaking of which, so if you choose to do the memorization instead of a second paper, which... Um, I think it might be good practice for you to write papers, I have to say, at least based on these, those that were in on time. Maybe it'd be good practice for you not to get papers in on time. Um, if you do the memorization, um, what you will be memorizing, I will now tell you, is the triumph of life. Um, so that's the last poem in the Norton. It's about 640 lines long. So it's serious memorization, um, but it's also um, a poem that if you memorize, uh, it will be in your mind forever. Lots of it will be in your mind forever, and that's a really good thing because it's one of the most amazing poems ever written. Um, so if you don't want to write a second paper, that's what you should do. Um, and I guess, you know, I think that's even more important than practicing yet another paper, um, although you need to practice. Just saying. Don't feel bad. Everybody needs to practice. Some more than others. You guys more than others. But, <laughs> oh, what a mean look. All right. Um, so let's talk a bit today about Prometheus Unbound. Um, and what I wanted, you know, we've, we've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. There's practically no plot. Um, what happens is that it's time, the hour comes for Jupiter no longer to be the king of heaven. Um, and for, in fact, um, we've talked a little bit about Pullman here. Did you guys notice um, that what heaven is referred to as at the end of Prometheus Unbound, um, when all the spirits from all the different areas of the universe are coming to join in the, um, the celebration of the defeat of Jupiter and the renovation of the um, realm of consciousness. Um, heaven is called a republic. Um, the republic of heaven. Um, from heaven, the republic sends its spirits. Um, so that's what Philip Pullman, um, one of the things that he gets from Prometheus Unbound, um, is talking about the republic of heaven. It's a very striking idea that heaven would be a republic rather than um, a kingdom. Um, kingdom of heaven, of course, is the biblical phrase. Um, but for Shelley and then for Pullman following <coughs> Shelley, um, what will happen is there will be a republic. So the republic of heaven and the republic of the universe 
is established um, when the hour comes for Jupiter to fall. And so he does fall. And um, what makes that hour come is the question, or maybe the question is, um, why doesn't anything make that hour come? It just comes. Prometheus Unbound starts, um, and then it turns out it's the right time for Jupiter to fall, so he falls and everyone is happy. Um, that would be the very, very quick plot summary. Did people know E.M. Forster's famous distinction between plot and story? Um, so this is in his, you know it, uh, Yeah, that, that's um, the, the plot, just the sequential. Um, mm -hmm. The story is consequential. Nice, yes. Okay. Sequential versus consequential. So sequential means one thing following on another. And consequence, everyone knows that sequence and consequence, the consequence is sequence with a prefix, right? Um, it means with this following. That's what a consequence is, that if you do this, it comes along with something that will follow it. Um, the consequence of your um, eating chocolate is, eating too much chocolate is that you get sick. Um, so what comes with eating too much chocolate is the next thing, the thing that follows it, the next thing in the sequence, but it comes with it which is that you get sick. Um, so a consequence is when you have a cause and effect. A sequence is one thing happens and then another thing happens. Um, but a consequence is one thing happens and causes another thing to happen. So Foster very famously says that, um, and nowadays people would probably reverse the names that he gives to these things, but I'll give you Foster's names, that um, a story is the king died and then the queen died. And that just tells you two things that happened. The king died, and then the queen died. A plot, which for Foster means a story where things connect up, where things cause each other, is the king died, and then the queen died of grief. And so the difference then is that one is just a bunch of things happen, pure plot summary and what we now would call plot summary, pure story summary is what Foster would call it. A bunch of things happen. A plot is how one thing leads to the next thing, not just a bunch of thing ha things happen um, just because they happen like firecrackers going off, but one thing leads to another thing, which is that one firecracker, by exploding, ignites another firecracker, which then explodes and so on. Um, so it may feel to you that Prometheus Unbound is what Foster's calling a story. Just a bunch of things happen. Um, and all the characters in Prometheus Unbound are saying, ooh, look what's happening. I will speak a lyric about it. Um, and that is what it feels like the first time you read it, but that's not right. Um, what is right and what's really crucial for Shelley is what makes things happen in Prometheus Unbound. That's the crucial thing for Shelley, what makes things happen in Prometheus Unbound. Shelley in Prometheus Unbound um, is doing something that he thinks will contribute to a revolutionary world view that will make the world a better place. Remember that Shelley and Byron 
were both dedicated to various revolutions on behalf of freedom, especially um, Greece's desire to free itself from Turkish domination. Um, but freedom in general was um, their political motive. Um, they regarded kings as tyrants. They regarded the very idea of um, a kingdom as an idea of tyranny. They believed in republics. They believed in freedom. They believed in self-determination. And they got into trouble for it. They thought religion was an instrument of oppression. Shelley especially, as you'll remember from Julian and Madelow, thought that religion was an instrument of oppression. So the figure who stands for the oppressiveness of religion is the oppressive god in Prometheus Unbound, namely Jupiter. Um, the conversation that Asia and Demogorgon have about what life is like and who made life the way it is um, is a somewhat obscure one. Demogorgon is a somewhat obscure figure. Um, he's meant to be an obscure figure. It's supposed to be hard to figure out exactly what Demogorgon is saying because the work of figuring out what Demogorgon is saying is the work that Shelley wants his readers to do. He thinks that's liberating work, figuring out what Demogorgon is saying. But Demogorgon does say that the creator of the universe, this is, let's see if we can find this quickly. I do want us to look at the preface for because I'm bound. But if you go to, um, let's say this is act, that's a good line numbers here. Um, act two, scene four. Let's just start at act two, scene four at the very beginning. Um, so what's happened is the Song of the Spirits have led Asia and Panthea to the cave of Demogorgon. Um, Demogorgon seems to represent something like the spirit of fate through knowledge of the inevitable. Um, Demogorgon, I mentioned this to you before, um, Shelley gets uh, the name out of Milton and out of some other writers, but the name is itself a typo or a misprint of the platonic word demiurge. Um, the demiurge in Plato is the god of the world, um, the creator of the world not as a kind of um, Judeo-Christian god, but as the architect of the world that we live in, the one who made things the way they are, not the one who gave us moral law um, or invented truth, but rather the constructor or creator of the world. Um, so people then, this, this strange figure arose um, out of a confusion, Demogorgon. The idea that he was a Gorgon was somehow in that as well. That is scary and obscure, um, but just a confusion. Um, if anyone knows the Elizabeth Bishop poem, The Man Moth, um, anyone know that poem? Great, you know it? Great, great poem, The Man Moth. Do you know where she got the title? She gives in a footnote to the title. It's a great poem. The Man Moth is this, is this very, very delicate, exposed, anxious being 
um, who only comes out at night, and he rides the subways facing backwards and looks at the third rail, the unbroken draft of, of poison, and he wants to climb into the moon, which he sees as a hole in the sky, and he sometimes drops a single tear, which he bombs. It's all quite this wonderful idea of a man-moth. But the title is The Man-Moth, asterisk, footnote, newspaper misprint for mammoth. So she was reading a newspaper, and they typed man-moth instead of mammoth. And so out of a typo, a poetic being comes into existence. The same is true of Demogorgon. Um, that he's the result of trying to understand something that is a sheer random accident. So at any rate, here we are in the cave of Demogorgon, and Asia and Pente have been led there. Um, and we get a little um, um, character checking. What veiled form sits on that ebon throne, Panthea asks, and Asia says, the veil has fallen, Panthea. I see a mighty darkness filling the seat of power and rays of gloom dart round as light from the meridian sun ungazed upon and shapeless, neither limb nor form nor outline, yet we feel it is a living spirit. So we don't know anything about Demogorgon except that he's a living spirit and dark rays of gloom come from him the way light comes from the sun at noon. Demogorgon, ask what thou wouldst know. Asia, what's, what canst thou tell, Demogorgon? All things thou darest demand. And then Asia and Demogorgon have a little catechism. Who made the living world? Asia asks Demogorgon. God. Asia, who made all that it contains? Thought, passion, reason, will, imagination. Demogorgon, God, almighty so the world is made by God and all that it contains and here in summary is what Asia thinks the world really consists of everything in the mind thought, passion, reason, will, imagination answer God, almighty God Asia, <coughs> who made that sense which when the winds of spring in rarest visitation or the voice of one beloved heard in youth alone fills the faint eyes with falling tears which dim the radiant looks of unbewailing flowers and leaves this peopled earth a solitude when it returns no more. So who made that sense that makes us see the world that way? Fills us with a sense of beauty, the winds of spring, of love, the voice of one beloved heard in youth alone, makes us weep so that the radiant looks of the flowers not weeping, they are not bewailing, makes us, when we weep, see this peopled earth as a solitude because we can't see anything, our eyes are veiled. When the voice of one beloved heard in youth alone returns no more, Again, remember the two spirits in allegory. What does the traveler sometimes see? Sweet whispers are heard by the traveler. Do you remember this? Which make night day? You should remember this. You wrote that. And a shape. It's a second. It's at the very end. 
the second of the two um, things that you might see if you go out into the night. Sweet whispers are heard by the traveler, which make night day. And a shape like his... Yes, good. Like his early love doth pass, upborne by her wild and glittering hair, and when she awakes on the fragrant grass, when he awakes on the fragrant grass, he finds night day. So, um, that memory fills the heart with love and longing and sorrow. That's a very deep human experience. That's a human experience that everyone has. Um, a human experience which you could call sweet, though in sadness, to quote um, Shelley again. Um, an experience we want, even if it's an experience of loss. It's the kind of loss where even experiencing that loss um, is an experience of love. So, who made that? Look how quickly, how typically quickly, Shelley goes in this little dialogue from who made the living world. That's a sentence that you could find in many, many texts could ask that question. Theological texts, philosophical texts, whatever. Who made the living world? Answer, God. Fine. Who made all that it contains? Thought, passion, reason, will, imagination. That becomes more Shelleyan. Okay, but still, God, almighty God, made those things which characterize human beings. Remember Byron, I would to God that I were so much clay as I am um, feeling thought imagination because then the past were passed away and is for the future. But I write this really, having got drunk exceedingly today so that I seem to stand upon the ceiling. But, uh, yeah, okay, so that's a romantic sense of the depth of the human soul. Um, Demogorgon, God, almighty God. And then... The third question we get from who made the living world to who made that sense, which when the winds of spring in rarest visitation the voice of one beloved heard in youth alone fills the faint eyes with falling tears which dim the radiant looks of unbewailing flowers and live, leaves this peopled earth a solitude when it returns no more. So that's typically Shelleyan. Here are the things that were created. Then Demogorgon gives the amazing answer, merciful God. Why is God merciful for creating that sense? I'm not, I'm not asking this as a real question. I mean, I am asking this as so real a question that we're not going to discuss it. I just want to point it out to you. That that's a really strong thing to say. That God, that it's a mercy of God's that he created a sense which feels this kind of melancholy and sorrow that fills faint eyes with falling tears so that the radiant looks of unbewailing flowers are dimmed. That's a mercy of God's. And she accepts that. But then she asks a completely different question. Again, this is a question that, um, you know, it's the when bad things happen to good people question. You all know that book or you've heard of it? Um, that is, if God is good, why do so many bad things happen to good people? Um, so she asks, a, that, that's a perennial question. Um, the new atheists, as they're called, uh, people like Sam, Sam Harris and uh, Richard Dawkins and uh, Christopher Hitchens, who died, what, about a year ago, I guess, 
Um, they basically, one reason they're atheists is they're saying no decent God could let the world be the way it is. Um, if you believe in God, you would have to believe that he was evil um, because the world is so horrid. And um, if God is omnipotent and omniscient, then he's not good. Better to be an atheist than to believe in an evil God. Um, that's a question like what she's asking. And who made terror, madness, crime, remorse? Interesting word, remorse. Terror, madness, crime, those are all bad things. Remorse, why is remorse a bad thing? And who made terror, madness, crime, remorse? which from the links of the great chain of things to every thought within the mind of man sway and drag heavily, and each one reels under the load towards the pit of death. So the great chain of things um, link to every thought that humans have and drag and sway humans from going forward so that we each reel under the load of terror, madness, crime, remorse towards the pit of death. Abandoned hope. So these are the experiences that humans have. Abandoned hope. We used to have hope, but then hope is abandoned. Abandoned hope. Um, where does that phrase come from? Say it? From Dante? Yeah, where? Yeah, which he's going to actually quote um, explicitly later. Um, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Um, literally, leave all hope, but, this, but abandon is probably a good translation for it. Um, do you know it in Italian? I think it's Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How did you pronounce it? Lucky. I think it's uh, lasciate. Lasciate. I lasciate. Yeah. Uh, uh, just because I, yeah, I can't yeah. remember the first word. But yeah. It's lasciate. Lasciate ogni speranza. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it's like lose all hope. Yeah. Yeah. Lose all hope. Um, abandon or leave or lose. So here is what human life is. It's all these things clogging us, namely abandoned hope, and love that turns to hate. That's life. Love that turns to hate. And self-contempt. That seems to chime with the remorse in the first line there. And self-contempt. Bitterer to drink than blood. Pain, whose unheeded and familiar speech is howling and keen shrieks day after day. So in this world, there's pain. And everywhere we go, we hear cries of pain. As Blake puts it, I mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. Um, everywhere there's pain. And we don't listen to it. Its speech is familiar. We hear it all the time. There's nothing unfamiliar about cries of pain. But there's howling and keen shrieks day after day. 
and hell, who created hell, or if not hell, the sharp fear of hell. So the answer is, he reigns. Now the question is, does he reigns there in line 28 refer to the same person as God, almighty God, merciful God? Demogorgon gives you three answers which are God, right, at line 8, then again at line 11, and then again at line um, 18. And now here at line 28, who does all this? And he gives us a sentence, not a, not a name. He reigns. Asia wants to know who that is. Utter his name. A world pining in pain asks but his name. Curses shall drag him down. Demogorgon's response, he reigns. I feel, I know it. Who? Third time, he reigns. Um, so, who is he? Is that God, almighty God, merciful God? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, was your hand up? No. Okay. Yeah. I think that, um, I don't know, in like the speech that follows after, I feel like there's somewhat of a suggestion that there's not one, like, almighty God. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. She asks, who reigns? There was the heaven and earth at first and light and love. So here's how things got to be the way they are. Then Saturn, from whose throne time fell, an envious shadow. So that's a pretty amazing um, idea. There used to be just celebration and wonder. And then Saturn came along and took over the universe. So there was no one reigning at first. Then Saturn, from whose throne time fell, an envious shadow. So time is the envious shadow of the throne of Saturn. Saturn himself, therefore, seems to be something like the creator of envy and the creator of time. Again, that's a, an idea worth pondering. Such the state of the earth's primal spirits beneath his sway as the calm joy of flowers and living leaves before the wind or sun has withered them and semi-vital worms, but he refused the birthright of their being, knowledge, power, the skill which wields the elements, the thought which pierces this dim universe like light. So Saturn took away all our birthrights, those being knowledge, power,
power, skill, thought, self-empire, and the majesty of love. Then Jupiter, I mean, excuse me, then Prometheus responded to Saturn's tyranny by helping Jupiter overthrow Saturn. That's what we're about to find out. Then Prometheus gave wisdom, which is strength, to Jupiter. And with this law alone, let man be free, clothed him with the dominion of wide heaven. So Prometheus said, Saturn is a tyrant. I will give you dominion of heaven as long as you allow man to be free. And so Prometheus gave humans all these wonderful things, which she will then describe um, for the next 50 or 60 lines. Um, and then um, go to line 99 or 98 after this long description. Such the alleviations of his state, of man's state, Prometheus gave to man. Such the alleviations of his state Prometheus gave to man, for which he hangs withering in destined pain. So because he gave humans all these beautiful things, he is being punished. But who rains down evil, the immedicable plague, which while man looks on his creation like a god and sees that it is glorious, drives him on the wreck of his own will, the scorn of earth, the outcast, the abandoned, the alone. So who takes humans who could look at the glory of the earth and destroys them, drives them on, outcast and abandoned and alone? Not Jove, while yet his frown shook heaven, I, when his adversary from adamantine chains cursed him, he trembled like a slave, declare who is his master? Is he, that is Job, is he too a slave? And then, so she says, Job can't be the person torturing all humans. And this is a crucial moment here. I mean, every moment for me sometimes is crucial, but this is one of them. One of the many, many, many crucial moments here. So who is Job's master, says Demogorgon? Is he too a slave? I mean, says uh, As Asia of Demogorgon. Who is Job's master? Is he too a slave? The he there is probably slightly ambiguous. That is, it could be unpacked as, is Job too a slave? But it could also be what? What's the other possible antecedent? Yeah, is his master, is even Job's master a slave? And the answer to that question is yes. As Demogorgon puts it, all spirits are enslaved who serve things evil. Thou knowest if Jupiter be such or no. So if you serve something evil, you're a slave. Does Jupiter serve evil? Serve things evil? I don't think that's a hard question. Yeah? 
he serves all the things that Asia has listed as evils earlier in the scene. Terror, madness, crime, remorse, um, self-contempt, all those things are things that Jupiter serves. The way this a similar idea appears in Paradise Lost is what, um, for those of you who've read it, you'll remember this, um, when Satan and the rebel angels in book six rebel against God, um, Satan takes all his followers to plot their rebellion against God, and they all agree except one, the angel Abdiel. And Satan says, we're fighting for freedom, and Abdiel says, how dare you? And Satan says, what do you mean? Um, do you think that we're going to be slaves to God and his newly appointed son? Um, because what drives Satan crazy is that God has announced one day in heaven, this day I have begot whom I declare my only son, unto him all these shall bow and shall declare him, shall proclaim him Lord. So Satan says, wait a second, who is this upstart who suddenly been put above us? Um, this is not right that we should suddenly have to be serving another master like that. So he insists that he's going to fight for freedom. And Abdiel says, uh, Satan characterizes Satan in a famous line like this, thyself not free, but to thyself enthralled. So what does that mean? Thyself not free, but to thyself enthralled. You're a slave to yourself. You're a slave to yourself. Yeah. Enthralled, that is made a thrall to yourself. So... You think it's freedom to assert yourself like this and to assert your own power. And to you think, therefore, that the pinnacle of freedom is tyranny, that in a tyranny, one person is completely free, the tyrant. And so absolute freedom would be to be the tip, the top of the mountain of tyranny. Because then you could do whatever you wanted. Um, what Abdiel is saying, and here what Demogorgon is saying, is no, that if you're a tyrant, you are as far from freedom as can be. Thyself not free, but to thyself enthralled. All spirits are enslaved who serve things evil. Thou knowest if Jupiter be such or no. So of course he serves things evil. This isn't going to be Demogorgon saying, well, all things are, are enslaved who serve things evil. Um, but, you know, Jupiter doesn't serve evil things because he's actually the master of everything. That's not what this line is meaning. What it means is, yes, Jupiter is a slave. So then Asia asks again, whom callst thou God? And Demogorgon says, I'm using your language. I speak but as ye speak, for Jove is the supreme of living things. Um, so if you want to talk about God the way you speak, you who are slaves to Jove, you'll call, you'll call him God. But Shelley's point here, and therefore Demogorgon's point, is if you make him into your God, you are enslaving yourselves. So he's the supreme of living things. Does that make him God? 
no, that's a kind of ambiguous put-down or an ambiguously worded put-down of Jove. Who is the master of the slave? Asia gets it. Who is the master of the slave, then, if Jove is also a slave, supreme of living things though he be? Who is the master of the slave? And then Davenport says, if the abysm could vomit forth its secrets, so if the abyss itself could tell you its secrets, but he interrupts itself, himself, that a voice is wanting, the deep truth is image for what would it avail to bid thee gaze on the revolving world what to bid speak fate, time, occasion chance and change to these all things are subject but eternal love so everything is subject to fate, time, occasion chance and change except for love so hang on to that idea. It's going to be the way Shelley characterizes Dante in The Triumph of Life, where he talks about how Dante um, was the poet whom love led serene, who through all glory love led serene, and who returned to tell the wondrous story how all things are transfigured except love. So in Dante, love is the thing that fills the universe. Um, love is the thing which all living beings feel, no matter who they are and where they are. Um, the greatest torments of the damned in Dante is they can't get near to the god that they love. Um, love is what all living things feel. And if you thought about love the right way, it says... Dante, and here even more so, says Shelley, although he doesn't think about love the way Dante does. Um, but if you thought about love the right way, you would see that fate, time, occasion, chance, and change would no longer have power over you. You would no longer be a slave to them. All things are subject to them. Are their subjects the way you're the subject of a king? Except eternal love. And now Asia says, so much I asked before, and my heart gave the response thou hast given, and of such truths each to itself must be the oracle. One more demand, and do thou answer me as my own soul would answer, did it know that which I ask. Prometheus shall arise, henceforth the son of this rejoicing world, when shall the destined hour arise? So notice what she's saying is, and this is what the politics of this poem are, is that when you stop worshiping tyranny, or when you stop um, being, when you stop serving it, when you stop fearing it, when you stop minding it, that's when Prometheus will be freed. When will that hour arrive? Well, the hour arrives in the very next moment. That's the next thing that happens. What is it? So that's the story. She has a conversation with Demogorgon, and then the hour arrives. 
The plot is that she has faith that that hour will arrive, that Jupiter's view of the world is not the truth, that all the things that we feel in the world, even sadness, even sorrow, and so on, are not things which necessarily require us to feel and to serve evil. And so the hour arrives as soon as she believes that it will arrive. So she believes it will arrive. She asks that question that she believes Demogorgon knows the answer to. And by asking it, it becomes self-answering. When shall the destined hour arrive? Behold. All she had to do was ask. And that is the arrival of the hour. Now, why that should be is essentially this, that what Shelley is saying, and he wants to say this on every level of human experience, what Shelley is saying is that freedom consists in having a different attitude towards life than protest and resentment. That if you think that life is hard, you make life hard. Now you do this as a matter of personal psychology, personal experience. That is, the more you lament human experience, the more lamentable your experience becomes, the more your experience is one of lamentation. The more, to put it very simply, because this is going to be a huge issue in this poem, the more you fear death, the more the fact that we're mortal fills you with despair, the more your view of life will be a despairing view of life. But the more you affirm life instead, the more you think this is an amazing thing. Everything, every moment in life is amazing. The less you'll fear death and the less you'll despair. So that's on the level of personal psychology, that's a not unfamiliar claim to make, and it's a very helpful and hopeful one um, as a way of getting out of certain black moods of despair and fear and anxiety. But what Shelley is doing is saying that's also a political idea. The more you fear tyranny, tyranny the more you fear tyrants, the more abjectly you will worship them or serve them and do what they want and give them power because their power comes from the fact that people fear them. And what they fear in tyrants is their power. So we fear tyrants because they have power and they have power because we fear them. And the more that that's our attitude towards tyrants, that they're our masters and we're their slaves and we have no choice about it, 
the more power they will have and the more they will be our masters and we will be their slaves and the less we will feel we have any choice about it. But the more we decide that their way of describing the world as a world of woe and sorrow and shortage and competition and um, competition for limited resources and um, survival of the fittest, etc. Um, the more we accept that view of the world, the more that's what the world will be like. But the more we, we attain to a different view of the world, a view of the world as a place of ecstasy and energy and jubilation of poetic experience would be the way to summarize it. The more we see the world as a world of poetic experience, of the possibilities of poetic experience. Uh, the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze, who died maybe 15 years ago, um, has a great sentence about literature where he says that this is an essay he wrote on Nietzsche, but he says about literature in general, that an indescribable joy always rushes out to us from the great books, even if what they speak about is dark, is madness, despair, disillusion. Even so, literary experience can turn all those things into an indescribable joy. That's something that Shelley, and also to some extent Wordsworth, thinks and feels. That looking at the world like a poet, looking at the world the way a poet looks at the world, is looking at the world in a way that transfigures it. That doesn't protest helplessly about how bad things are, and how, and, or doesn't turn that protest into a protest about how bad life is but rather finds life everywhere, finds night, day. And in doing so, it overthrows everything that's bad about life. So if you look at the preface to Prometheus Unbound, at the very start of the, the poem, um, Let's look at um, yeah. There are a couple of paragraphs I want to look at. Um, it's a. It's let's see. One, two, three, four paragraphs in. He says, the imagery which I have employed will be found in many instances to have been drawn from the operations of the human mind are from those external actions by which they are expressed. That is, the operations of the human mind are expressed. This is unusual in modern poetry. That is, that um, the imagery in Prometheus Unbound is an allegory for what goes on in the human mind. This is unusual in modern poetry, he says, 
although Dante and Shakespeare are full of instances of the same kind, Dante indeed more than any other poet and with greater success. So what he's saying here is everything that you read in Dante in the Divine Comedy is an external depiction of what's going on in his own mind. Shelley is saying everything that you read in Prometheus Unbound is also an external depiction of what's going on in the mind. Like the way he tried to think through Mont Blanc as an image of the mind thinking about Mont Blanc, looking at Mont Blanc. But he says, so Dante is the modern poet, or the later poet, who was most successful in this. But the Greek poets, as writers to whom no resource of awakening the sympathy of their contemporaries was unknown, were in the habitual use of this power. And it is the study of their works, since a higher merit would probably be denied to me, to which I am willing that my readers should impute the singularity. So he says, this is what the Greek poets did. I read a lot of Greek poetry. I studied their work. I studied Dante. I studied Shakespeare. And that's why I'm doing what they did. Um, now notice the crucial phrase here, that no resource of awakening the sympathy of their contemporaries was unknown. That is, that the Greek poets used a kind of imagery Shelley is claiming, in which the imagery represented the operations of the mind. And using that imagery awakened the minds of their fellow Greeks, their fellow citizens, their fellows. So hang on to that idea, and let's go forward a little bit. Um, I guess let's go to um, one, two, three paragraphs down. As to imitation, he says, that is, um, he said before that some people think that there's, that, pe that um, a lot of poets are imitating Wordsworth. Um, and he says, the form that a poem is written in isn't what matters. It's what the poem says. The form comes with the age. But um, the imagination that fills out that form has to be original to every poet. But then he goes on. So, well, OK, so, so um, two paragraphs before the end. Thus, a number of writers possess the form whilst they want the spirit of those whom it is alleged they imitate. Because the former is the endowment of the age, that is form, in which they live, and the latter must be the uncommunicated lightning of their own mind. So um, spirit in the mind is spirit which is uncommunicated. That is, it doesn't come from somewhere else. It's the mind itself is a flash of lightning. It's not that it doesn't communicate that is, doesn't um, illuminate other people. It's that it comes from the mind itself. Then 
he goes on with this idea of imitation. As to imitation, poetry is a mimetic art. It creates, but it creates by combination and representation. Poetical abstractions are beautiful and new, not because the portions of which they are composed had no previous existence in the mind of man or in nature, but because the whole produced by their combinations has some intelligible and beautiful analogy with those sources of emotion and thought and with the contemporary condition of them. So what he's saying here is what makes poetry poetry is what it does with what it sees in the world. Poetry is a mimetic art, that is, it depicts real things. It's not like a Jackson Pollock painting, although there are arguments that even Jackson Pollock paintings are mimetic paintings. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying poetry depicts things that are in the world. But what makes poetry poetry, what gives it the lightning of the spirit, rather than merely the form, is the way it looks at things in the world. The way it puts things together. One great poet is a masterpiece of nature, which another not only ought to study, but must study. So everything in Prometheus Unbound in a way is captured in those words. Poets look at nature, he's saying, and they, in the mirror of their minds, they combine in an absolutely new and dazzling thing what they see outside of themselves, because poetry is a mimetic art. But that new and dazzling thing, that's amazing. That's what poetry can do. But among the things that poets look at are other poets. So another poet becomes something in the world for a poet. Milton or Dante or Shakespeare or Wordsworth are for Shelley masterpieces of nature, just as Mont Blanc or the ocean are masterpieces of If you write a great poem, what you're doing is responding in your mind to the most amazing things in nature, the things that make life worth living. You're responding to that in your mind. But among those things are other poets. So we get a kind of political view here of what poetry can do, which is that poetry can make you see the world in a different way. In a way in which you appreciate the things that the world has to offer. Instead of feeling enslaved by them, you celebrate them ins instead. You don't serve them, but you celebrate them. And in doing that in a poem, you yourself are adding to the stock of wonderful things in the world. You yourself are creating masterpieces of nature that other poets, other readers, other thinkers can also respond to. So what Shelley is doing, 
And, you know, lest this sound too hippie as she's about to say, look, I know this sounds like, um, like uh, hippie wishfulness, but it isn't. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, and Prometheus Unbound, in a way, is the least wishful poem you could ever imagine. That's one of the amazing things about it. Um, but what he's saying is something like this, that what romanticism, what we've talked about in Shelley, what we talked about in talking about Mont Blanc, for example, is the extent to which the mind is greater than the world. What were thou in sea and skies and sky if to the mind's imagining silence and solitude were vacancy? So everything is what it is because of the mind that perceives it. Now that idea that you could see so intensely that you could change your world, the world in your mind, is an intensely individualistic idea. That's romanticism as an individualistic movement where someone like Wordsworth talks about how things were for him and how he's lost that, but how he's gotten it back. So again, the intimations of, which is always our template for this kind of thinking, is the world used to be covered with celestial light, or it seemed to me that it was. But then I found out that that was a projection from my own mind. And as, and it turned out the world wasn't full of celestial light. That only came from my own mind. And I lost that light, and the world seemed terrible. But then eventually I realized that the fact that it came from my own mind meant that my mind was pretty deep and could experience pretty intensely. And when I think of that, I celebrate again. In a minor key, but I celebrate. Because to me, the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do lie, that oft do lie too deep for tears. So all of that is intensely individual, almost solipsistic. Wordsworth isn't talking about the rest of the world. He's talking about himself. And in the intimations ode, he's getting himself to a point where he can turn loss into gain. Turn, as I put it, the loss of intensity into the intensity of loss. So that's fine. That's, that's a very helpful thing for people to be able to figure out ways to do that. Tennyson's version of that very famously is, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all." Um, never to have loved at all is meh. To have loved and lost means you're sadder. You're at a lower level than whatever, which is never to have loved at all. Then your relation to life is whatever. If you've loved and lost, then you're way below whatever. It's bad, and yet, it's, yet being bad is better than being whatever. That's 
Tennyson is getting that from Wordsworth. That's the Wordsworthian way of looking at the world. When we talked about the sublime versus the beautiful, it had, this has a resemblance to that, to the question of, of making the negative into its absolute value. Remember absolute value from um, high school? The absolute value of negative three is? Yay, good. So that's what Wordsworth, that's what Tennyson are doing. But that tends to have an extremely antisocial possibility, an extremely antisocial consequence is something that's risked by taking that view, which is what matters is how I think about the world. The world itself doesn't matter, it's how I think about the world. Now Wordsworth tries to rescue himself from that to some extent by saying what really fills me with a sense of depth is thinking about everyone's experience, the fact that everyone is going through this. But still, what he really cares about is that he's the one being filled with a sense of depth. And that's the complaint that lots of people make about Wordsworth. Lots of his contemporaries make about Wordsworth. He has these amazing poems about the poor. Um, he, took, he was really one of the first, not, not the first, but one of the first poets to take the experience of poor people, of illiterate people, of uneducated people seriously, and to write poems about them. But on the other hand, you can complain that they were subjects. It's like people taking photographs in, in subways of um, people who are poor, which is, look at the beautiful art I made by, be, by caring so much about what poor people look like. So in one way it ennobles them, but in another way it distances them. You know, if you have any ambivalence about that style, you know, subway photos or homeless people photos or let us now praise famous men type photos, um, your ambivalence would be they're making art out of someone else's suffering. This isn't art for those people. It's only art about those people. Did everyone know about let us now praise famous men? The... the um, James A.G. Walker Evans' book, amazing book of photographs of um, poor people in the South, uh, revolutionary book. Um, but you know the general thing that I mean, which is photos, you know, Diana Arbus would be another one, you know, her photos of circus um, freaks and things like that. That kind of photo where they're amazing and the photographer has gone into amazing places to make art out of grotesquerie or misery or poverty. But on the other hand, that art isn't for the people in it. The people in those photographs would never appreciate those photographs, would never have any opportunity to see them. But if they did see them, they wouldn't know they were art. They wouldn't think of them as art. So we're different because we do. That's kind of a complaint you can make about Wordsworth. What Shelley is saying and doing is saying that what a poet does is gives you a way to think the way the poet is thinking about the world. And the very fact that the poet is doing that 
is a good thing about the world, is a thing that will snowball into a celebration of the world. Every time a poet writes something like Prometheus Unbound and helps us decide to have contempt for tyranny and to be self-reliant and to think about our own mental powers, our own creative powers, the powers of our own imaginations. Every time a poet appeals to our imagination, that appeal to our imagination strengthens our imagination and weakens tyranny. So he says, I, you know, I said that I really wanted to insist that he's not um, just a kind of, a kind of hippie um, wishful that it, this isn't just hippie wishfulness, is um, what he says in the next paragraph, and then we'll end with this. Let this opportunity be conceded to me of acknowledging that I have what a Scotch philosopher characteristically terms a passion for reforming the world. What passion incited him to write and publish his book he admits to explain. So he's saying, what's wrong with having a passion for reforming the world? Here this guy said, oh, Shelley, he just wants to reform the world. What a noob. Um, and then he goes on, for my part, I had rather be damned with Plato and Lord Bacon than go to heaven with Paley and Malthus. You all know who Malthus is. But it is a mistake to suppose that I dedicate my poetical compositions solely to the direct enforcement of reform, or that I consider them in any degree as containing a reasoned system on the theory of human life. So he's saying, I don't think Prometheus Unbound is going to be what is, is a political tract that's going to make the world better. Didactic poetry is my abhorrence. Nothing can be equally well expressed in prose that is not tedious and supererogatory in verse. So if you can say it in prose, don't say it in poetry, he's saying. My purpose has hitherto been simply to familiarize the highly refined imagination of the more select class of poetic readers with beautiful idealisms of moral excellence. I just wanted you to think a certain way aware that until the mind can love and admire and trust and hope and endure, reason, principles, and moral conduct are seeds cast upon the highway of life, which the unconscious passenger tramples into dust, although they would bear the harvest of, their happy, of his happiness. Should I live to accomplish what I pur purpose, which he didn't, that is, produce a systematical history of what appear to me to be the genuine elements of human society, let not the advocates of injustice and superstition flatter themselves that I should take Aeschylus rather than Plato as my model. So he plans to write a political book, a sober political book to explain how to do things. He plans to write a book um, urging on political, historical, philosophical grounds the, the system of society that he wants. And he says, when I do that, Plato will be my model, not Aeschylus. This is poetry. This is part of what, why you should have political freedom, so that everyone can live as intensely as poets do. But it's not that living intensely is going to free people. It's the why we should want it. It gives us the reason that we should want freedom. And the reason we should want freedom is that when we have it, we'll celebrate it. And that's what Prometheus Unbound is about. Okay, we barely scratched the surface of the poem. 
Um, you should write your second and third. And you should write every paper you ever write from now on on it. Um, but we'll start reading some Keats um, for Tuesday. It's on the syllabus. And um, we will get back to Shelley, but it's going to be Keats for a little while. Okay. Have a good weekend. <laughs>